welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 43 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. My name's Patrick. Hey, King Scott here. And adventurers, whether you're listening while you're at work, maybe you're in your car, or whatever you're doing, we're glad to be part of your day. Indeed, definitely. We hope to entertain you with today's adventures that includes Cascadia, Rove, and maybe a couple more. A feature 8-bit breakdown of Corrosion. Yeah. A look back at Awkward Guests. We're going to visit Archmage Andrew at the Academy for a lesson you simply cannot refuse. (laughs) Before finally rounding things out today with our final thoughts on PAX Unplugged. Yeah, it's going to be a big old episode today, Scott. Oh, it most certainly is. We've had a lot of things to do and a short time to squeeze all of them in. Yeah, no kidding. Speaking of final thoughts on PAX Unplugged, we say final thoughts because, Adventures, if you missed it last week, we were joined by the hungry gamer, Will Brown. We talked nine games. Each of us picked three that we wanted to talk about that we played at PAX. Go back and check that episode out. That was a lot of fun. Oh, it most certainly was. It was great to see Will again. Go back through the memories. And that's one of the big things I love about cons is, sure, you get to do a lot of things. and There's a lot of things you do in the moment. But the fun memories you take back with you are something that are just fantastic, and you can't wait to relive them again. The memories outclass the games, that's for sure. I expected to go there and feel like, man, this is all about games. No, it was all about friends and making memories, and the games were just sort of the catalyst through which it happened. Definitely. It was a great time. Hey, we hope you all had a Merry Christmas, but the new year is upon us. I think this episode's coming out on the 30th. So, looking forward to the new year. Something you can do January 15th if you're in the Pittsburgh area. Scott, we're going to be at Ruckus. That we most certainly are. And we're going to be changing our whole thing of beer and pizza for coffee and pastries now, I believe. Yeah, muffins. I don't know what's in there. It looks pretty good. It smelled really good, so I'm excited for it. Oh, it's going to be a great time. I mean, the only bad part about it is... We're all going to be like knocking dice off the table and everything else because we're going to be so wired on caffeine. <laughs> Everybody's going to have the jitteries. Let's hope we're not playing any games that are fiddly. We'll have uh, players that are fiddly. <laughs> hey, check this out. Eric Masso, designer of Cape May, a review from a few episodes back. He's going to be there with copies of the game available for sale for 50 bucks. Also, Mike Clark, Pittsburgh area designer of Breakneck Derby is going to be there as well. Come on, meet a couple of designers, play some games with us that's something that's just so much fun that we are able to have designers come hang out with us play a few games and it takes away the whole idea of they're up in this echelon in the hall of elders of game designers and everything Mm. hey they're just regular people that want to play some games too (laughs) they walk into the room and there's a certain glow about them exactly and then you hear ted knight in the background going meanwhile in the hall of justice (laughs) Scott, we don't do news basically ever, but did you see Miniature Market was bought by Asmodee? I did, and 
my mind is going in like 17 different directions trying to figure out if this is a good thing or a bad thing. I really don't know. Okay, I was going to ask you, what does this mean for us? Uh, I don't know either. Uh, adventurers, tune into a show that knows what the hell they're talking about, and they'll tell you the significance <laughs> of Asmodee buying Miniature Market. Miniature Market being a, an online, and I guess they have a they have a brick and mortar store in St. Louis, I believe. But yes, they yes, they do. Very massive online retail presence for board games. They're under the Asmodee umbrella now, apparently. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it works out as a distribution idea for Asmodee to use. Because I know whenever they came in and Asmodee changed a lot of their rules as far as returns and missing Mm -hmm. pieces and everything, that really had a lot of people upset. Now then, having their own distribution site with Miniature Market... It's almost like, I don't know if they're trying to just make their own presence known as a storefront to sell things now, and it's going to go away from small town brick and mortar, your friendly local game store and everything. I don't know where they're going to be going with this. I know I've been enjoying since they bought Board Game Arena, they've been putting a ton of games out there for people to try. That's a great thing. Only gotten better. Now, with them having a storefront... It almost feels like it's like a Walmart for games starting. Yes. Yes, it does. We'll have to wait and see. I guess time will tell what comes of that. But hey, we're here for some of our recent plays. Folks want to talk about some of the games we've had on the table. You ready? Definitely. Let's do it. All right, Scott, I want to talk about a game called Cascadia. This is from Flat Out Games, designed by Randy Flynn. It's a 2021 game. You know I love these little fun facts. The Cascadia Bioregion. What the heck is that? It encompasses all or portions of Washington, Oregon, British Columbia, and more. So think like Northwest and into Canada. Bioregions are geographic areas defined by physical traits, land or soil, composition, watershed, etc., as well as the cultural traits of the inhabitants that live within them. Now, the Cascadia bioregion includes the entire watershed of the Columbia River. As far as the Continental Divide, put simply, we're talking about the Pacific Northwest. Oh, hush. I thought that was neat. I'm interested in these. You didn't wonder what the heck Cascadia even meant. I thought they just made up a word. Well, I, I mean, yes, I thought that they there's a word that they kind of adapted a little bit to say, hey, this looks like it will be a good name for a game. Let's toss it on there. Well, Cascadia is a one-to-four player tile selection and placement game in which players are going to build out their habitable land and populate it with wildlife. Now, this one's simple enough, Scott. I think I can give an understanding of the game just by describing it. You played this one, right? Yes, I did get a chance to play this one. Oh, okay. So, Adventures, this one's just for you. At the start of the game, you're going to have five animal cards placed at the top of the table that outline the scoring for each animal that you acquire throughout play. The moose, for example, might score exponential points for how many of them you could get into a straight line, whereas bears might want to be placed next to each other with no other bears adjacent to the pair. They want some alone time. (laughs) Now we're going to draw four tiles from the bag of tiles and put them in the selection area. Plus, we have a big bag of tokens representing the five different animals that you see on those scoring cards. We're going to pull four of those tokens out. We're going to put them underneath those tiles that we just put in the selection area. So selection area has four cards and four animals directly, uh, sorry, four tiles and four animals directly below them. 
Now each player has a starting habitat, and on their turn, they're going to choose one of those tiles plus the animal token under it. The tiles place literally anywhere you want in your player area, and then the token is placed on any tile with that animal symbol. So if you took a fox, you have to place it on a tile that has a fox symbol. Pretty simple, right? Oh, yes. The tile and token you took from the common area, they're going to be replaced with new ones, and then the next player takes their turn. Now, there's a few minor rules here, like there's a scoring bonus for having large areas of habitat that are all the same land type, like how many forests did I connect, or that tiles have a means of gaining a pine cone, which gives a small ability when you use it, or maybe an end game point. But honestly, that's basically the game. All right, so you're talking all about Cascadia, and I mean, this is definitely the recent hotness. Everyone's been playing it putting their pictures online, mm-hmm. putting their face next to the box. A lot of folks out there are itching to play some Cascadia. Now, what were your thoughts on it? Scott, speaking of face next to the box, we need to do that. I don't understand. Like, make a make a giant surprise, like, what do I know that you don't face or something? <laughs> Blew me away face and post it. And that's, uh, I don't know, I was reading something about YouTube and, like, ways that people get clicks. And that's apparently one of them, like, you're – Thumbnail should always have your face with this holy crap, oh my goal <laughs> look on it. You know what? That's what we're going to do on Thursday. We're going to do a photo shoot. Adventures, keep your eyes open for uh, for our lovely mugs all over the Facebook page. Scott, I feel like adventurers tune in and they stick with us because we give it to them straight. Adventures. Now, don't do this if you're in your car, but otherwise, I want to give you a little bit of homework. If you're trying to level up, this is a way to get some extra EXP and get over that hump. So, here we go. I want you to listen to three other reviews of Cascadia. We're even gonna we're even gonna stop the podcast when you hear our little transition. Doot, 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 doot. That's how you know. Okay, now we're back. Okay, you're back. You gained 200 EXP for that, which hopefully leveled you up in all the right stats and all the right places. Now that you heard three random reviewers gush over how amazing this game is, let's do some things level up style. Scott Cascadia is about as bland a game as I think I've ever played. okay let me make it clear there's nothing wrong with it point blank this is not a bad game finger quotes i gave that homework because just about every reviewer has apparently been blown away hey happy happy fun fun reviews get lots and lots of views right yes and sometimes they feel like not really sincere sometimes Well, I, I don't want to go there. It's just maybe maybe for me it was a calibration of whose thoughts and, and gaming tastes I most line up with, which apparently is not many. Okay, let's start here. I said it's not a bad game, and it's not a bad game. It's, it's a fine little puzzle. But first and foremost, there's no player interaction. Beyond someone taking what you might have wanted from the common pool, uh, the options are always going to be half decent enough anyway that the difference between the best and second best selection is usually minimal. So you're basically playing a solo game with other people. Now, some folks like that. I get it. Second, the point scoring cards are not that restrictive. So if you just look at two of them and you say, I'm going to perform those ones optimally, and you just shrug off the others. Unless you're stuck with a token of a different type, your score is going to be just fine. This makes any sort of long-term strategic planning not only kind of impractical, but foolish. Every decision is tactical, and for that matter, not difficult, or even particularly meaningful. Now, every time I take an animal, I could practically roll a die, and I could practically place it at random, and while I will lose, I bet you I'm not going to be that far behind from someone who tried, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. Third, adventures. Those reviews you watched, I bet they hyped up the variability, didn't they? Oh, the variability coming. Okay, the variability comes from the scoring cards, and it's kind of minimal. One game you need bears to be in groups of two. Then the next game you need them to be in groups of three. Whoa, it's a totally different game now, right? Well, yeah, the puzzle's 
there's some variation there in the puzzle, but it doesn't change the game enough for me to say, oh, wow, that's, that's very bone. Get back in and see what the scoring cards are going to have me doing this time. Fourth, every single review I've seen, this is why I went on this rant, because I will tell you, Scott, every single review I've seen talks about how wonderful the art is. Now, this is Beth Sobel's art. Is that name familiar? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, Wingspan. Uh, I told you last week, uh, Whatnot Cabinet. Uh, her art's fantastic. Yep. It's top-notch, no doubt. When you're playing Cascadia, you have five pieces of art on the scoring cards. That's it. And there's four different variations of each scoring card. So like the moose, there aren't even four different moose pictures. There's two, and they just mirrored the image for the other two scoring cards. Oh, that's fine and all, but everybody's gushing over this art. Other than that, other than those four pieces of art, which you see at the very beginning of the game, and the, the box cover, which isn't even used in the game, you're looking at tiles that reminded me of like Cryptid or Kingdom Builder. They're, they're function over form, and that makes sense for the game. That's not a poor decision. Let's not ham it all up over the earth. 30 seconds after the start of play, you've seen the animal art on the scoring tiles, and immediately the art well is dry. Finally. I think this is important to a lot of gamers. I want to feel clever when I play the game. I want a long-term strategy to pay off, and I want the game to offer times where I feel powerful. None of that happened here. I felt like I was just kind of going through the motions. You know what? I'll defer to you. You take the floor for me for a minute because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm getting all hammed up over here. What do you <laughs> think, Scott? You played Cascadia with me. Yes, I played it as well, and I agree with you on a lot of those topics that you brought up there. This is a fun game. Yes. It was enjoyable. I had a good time playing it, but it's one of those games that, sure, I'll play it if someone says, hey, let's play Cascadia. Okay, let's play it. I'm not going to be the person forcing that on people, bringing that up as an idea. I'm not going to say, hey, let's play Cascadia. It's one of those games that feels like it's in the zeitgeist right now of everyone choosing their hot game at the end of the year. It's a good game. Yes, you have variability. But at the end of the day, it's really just a puzzle game that you're playing on your own with other people. And once again, Adventurers, I just got to put it out there. We aren't saying it's a bad game. I really want to get that across because I know we don't want to come across as doing negative things here we're just trying to temper the excitement behind it that's the whole right, thing right there. because every review i watched was like oh cascadia the art the the gameplay it's amazing it's you know well i could go on and on I, i'm more griping about the hype on this one than i am the actual gameplay now i try to give a little bit of a speed bump there with your uh, uh <laughs> anger that was going on there now so you played anger. it now is there anything you liked in the game Going back to where I started, there's nothing wrong with it. I actually like that uh, the rulebook includes the achievements. That's the sort of thing that I would like to incorporate into solo play that's going to keep me coming back. But there wasn't, you know, if I'm honestly answering your question, there wasn't anything that I disliked. Okay. I just think that it's something that we've seen before. It's kind of a themeless abstract puzzle that you play on your own with other people sitting at the table doing the same thing. If I can qualify everything that I said, like all the issues that I brought up, they're not issues with the game per se, but they're more an attempt, like you said, to temper expectations. I would recommend this for gamers who enjoy a passive puzzle. They don't want to take that in their games. They don't want you know what they're doing to be tampered with. It's well-produced. It's a nice casual game. It's a nature theme, and it can be taught in five minutes. And I think for a lot of people, that has a ton of appeal. But for me, like, it was kind of forgettable, and I'd be surprised if anybody's breaking it out to play in two years. Yeah, it definitely has the feeling of one that's going to get lost in time. But not a bad game. 
Just, no, no, no. We were not pleased with the amount of our expectations were not met. That's a good way of putting it. Boy, I hope that what you have to say about this next one on the list is good because uh, <laughs> we just we ranted and raved for a little while. Uh, you're talking about Rove. I've never heard of this one. Yes. Rove is a game that came out in 2021 from Button Shy Games and designed mm-hmm. by Dustin Dobson and Milan Z- Zivkovic. In this, you are on board a spaceship that has crash landed on an unknown planet. And Rove stands for Results-Oriented Versatile Explorer. So basically kind of think of WALL-E from the old Pixar That's movie. That's kind of what it looks like on the uh, on the box art. Exactly, exactly. So you it's have a little wallet. And this is why I, I absolutely love Button Shy Games. They come up with this little wallet that you can just stick in your pocket and take anywhere with you. It's it's wonderful. So coming home from PAX, I had a six-hour train ride. So what am I going to do? Let's pause right there. Why are you taking a train? What is this, the 1920s? Why not? I mean, you get to sit back. (laughs) You get to relax. You don't have to drive. You're saving mileage on your car. You don't have to pay for parking. Hey. It works out beautifully and takes you right into downtown Philly. A short little Uber to your Airbnb. You're good to go. Fair enough. I digress. (laughs) But yes, so in Rove, you have six module cards. They are parts of your spaceship that are left whenever you crashed. Now, each one of these are going to be, they'll be a brain. And basically has a little thing here where you can place any module adjacent to a brain. It may have another one with gears on it. It may have something that allows you to draw an extra movement card. So these are put out in two rows of three cards each. You have mission cards. And these mission cards, first of all, have delightful artwork on the left side of it. And then they have a little three by four matrix set up on the side there with cards and cards that match those module cards. Mm -hmm. So what you want to do is you draw out nine of them, I believe. And what you do is you take a look at them and you try and complete what the pattern is by moving those modules around. Now, on the back of those cards, there will be a small thing here with a three and a lightning bolt on it. That shows you how many moves you can get from playing this card. There's also a three by three grid in the middle with another number down in the bottom right hand corner. If you match the cards that are on the back of that with the cards on your play area, you've got the modules in a special alignment that allows you to take extra actions. So there's a chance that you can get extra actions to move things around. So what you want to do is you want to be able to move the module cards around to match what the missions show. And each Mm -hmm. time you do that, you flip over the card and you get that gorgeous little piece of artwork. You play another one next to it. Oh, my God. It lines up perfectly. So what happens is not only are you building out a little tableau of your missions that you completed, you're also putting out this wonderful little piece of artwork with the rove getting struck by lightning and then helping some aliens build a bridge. Oh, but then their big teenage brothers angry and is chasing you across the horizon. So all these little things that go on to it. This one here is definitely one that you have no player interaction with. This is just you playing a puzzle game. It's a lot of fun. It's a solo game, right? Yes. It's a lot of fun, and it's just something that helps you pass the time. 
Uh, they have enough in it to make it feel a little bit different from other puzzle games you may play. And mm-hmm. it's just the theme of it is just a fun little thing. And I've got to go back to it again in that the whole idea of the portability of this game is just amazing. Just in this little wallet, so easy to stick in your back pocket, stick in your backpack, stick in your purse. And I think that Button Shy Games has really exploited this niche so well with so many of their games. So hats off to those guys. And if you get a chance, check out Rove. It's a delightful little small game puzzle game that you can play in oh maybe 10, 15 minutes. But still, it's enough that get your brain going. So if you're on a lunch break or coffee break at work, great little thing to break out, kind of get your brain going again. Wonderful, wonderful idea that they have here. Uh, so that is Rove. Let me ask you a couple questions about Rove. Oh, please do. First and foremost, and this is one that, that I factor into solo games that I like to play. Is there a lot of luck involved? The luck is really involved in whenever you're drawing cards. So that's basically it. Other than that, you are dealt your, you dealt your hand of cards. So that's what you have to work with. So you need to be able to work with what you have. So there's not really that much luck involved other than what you may draw into your hand. So similar to how Solitaire, you could you could make the argument that Solitaire, the game's predetermined before you even begin playing. Sure. Uh, it's just simply whether or not the cards line up and what's the next thing to show from the stack and whether exactly. or not it fits in a exactly. certain place. And so similar to Solitaire in that its variability is going to be based in the opening and what you do with it. And sometimes you can have an opening that could win and you played it poorly, and you lost, I gather? Oh my, yes. Whenever you play that, and you look at it, and you pull out out another card to see what you're going to be building, you're oh, God. So you have that (laughs) moment. So along with our damn it moments, we now have, oh, God, moments. (laughs) Well, sounds like a fun little game. Rove, I might want to borrow that one at some point, and maybe give it a whirl myself. Please do. It's a wonderful little game if you're at a function that you don't really know that many people and you have a place you can just tuck away a little bit. Hey, it's a great way to do it. And if nothing else, it's a nice icebreaker. If someone comes up, oh, what are you playing? And it's it's a great thing to start conversations with people as well. Brave adventurers, Mondo Games has joined our party. Get 10% off your purchase with Mondo Games using promo code LEVELUP. L-E-V-E-L-U-P. You can go straight to their website or just click the Mondo button on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Want to expand your options in Unmatched? Enjoy a solo game of A Gentle Rain. Or maybe you're getting fired up for The Thing, Infection at Outpost 31. Don't just score some loot, get 10% off with promo code LEVELUP. I don't know if this is like a, an industrial cleaning device or like Formula 409 or something like that. Oh, you, you know have... me. I'm going to give you the background. Zapotech? Is that correct? Yeah. Zapotech. This is from Board and Dice, designers Fabio Lopiano, and it's uh, it was listed as a 2022 game. I played this one in the upcoming games area at PAX. Uh, the designer, Fabio Lopiano, he's the designer of Merv, Ragusa, and Kalimala, mm. among others, so some strong credits to his name. Yes. 
Scott Mordendice is quickly becoming one of my favorite publishers. I don't, I don't really categorize publishers of who are my favorite or, or whatever, but I'm telling you what, I was, I was over at their booth and I'm looking, I'm like, wow, they have a ton of games that are strategically deep. They have games that keep me coming back. They did the T-series, which was Magistus, to want Sue. Oh, you, yes, yes. Which I think is the place that Andy Dufresne wanted Red to go after they got out of Shawshank. I'll tell you where I'd go. So hot to nail. So. Yeah, I'll go with that. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> they did Takenu, plus they did that Yido Deluxe set that oh. uh, that I got that we played and reviewed. Uh, yes, yes. Half a year ago. So does Zapotec live up to this lineup? Well, let's break it down with some flavor, courtesy of some fine research by reading the front of the BGG page. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, the Zapotec were a pre-Columbian civilization that flourished in the valley of Oaxaca in Mesoamerica. Archaeological evidence reveal their culture going back at least 2,500 years. Remnants of the ancient city of Monte Alban in the form of buildings, ball courts, tombs, and finely worked gold jewelry testify of this once great civilization. Monte Alban was one of the first major cities in Mesoamerica and the center of the Zapotec state that dominated much of the territory that today belongs to the Mexican state of Oaxaca, which, as you'll recall, was a lost loot game. Yes, yes, it was. Okay, enough with the history lesson. Let's get into the game. Zapotec is a bit of an engine-building area majority game for one to four players that plays in a little over an hour. It's a five-round game, and it's going to challenge players to increase their income and place houses for the sake of majorities, all driven first and foremost through card play, which I'll get to. But let's start with the board here. You got three regions of this board, each with various land types, rocky areas, forests, etc. And each region type has various building types on them, farm, temples, etc. that you can build. Now, these buildings are represented by a tile on the main board. So if you're going to build on a location, you get to take that tile and put your building in its place. In turn, that tile goes on your personal player board, where this kind of engine building comes up. See, at the beginning of your turn, you're going to take income by choosing any row or column on a 3x3 three three grid on your personal player board. Now, at the start of the game, you can produce very little. There's some stuff printed on that grid, but that's it. You choose a row and you're like, okay, well, there's this one thing printed there. As you start placing tiles onto that grid, though, when you take income, you get the resource that was printed on your board, plus whatever shows on any tiles that you've added to that row or column that you've selected. This means typically that in turn one, you can make like two resources, whereas by turn three or four, you could produce five or seven from one income. So a real rampant power. Scoring is primarily going to come from four different places. One, the pyramids that you build, and follow along with me, because this, this is the meat of the game, the pyramids that you can build. Now, those houses that I talked about earlier that you're going to be placing all over the board, there's a simple recipe printed on your player board that shows you what you need in order to build one. There's also a recipe for building a piece of a pyramid. And pyramids come in three steps, so multiple players can all contribute to the same one. But the relevance here is that the player who places the first portion of a pyramid will determine what scores for everyone who contributed Ooh. to it. So you were watching our game. If I started a pyramid and I selected a tile that says, at the end of the game, anyone who worked on this pyramid is going to get bonus points for houses in the blue region. Well, I started it, but if you have a whole bunch of houses in the blue region, you can build the next section. And then I can build the final and actually get an exponential gain on those points. Points are also going to come from a sacrifice track, which is basically a track that you move up by spending resources, namely priests and corn. There's some triggered immediate benefits when you move up it, but also endgame scoring uh, is going to occur based on how high you are on that track. 
Third, you have ritual cards, which are kind of like in-game bonus points. Uh, like inside, you put your star up to indicate that you've done something. Mm-hmm. This you can pay and place a disc on there. But the last and most common place that players are going to collect their points is from end-of-round scoring. And I mentioned Zapotec is run by card play. Players are each going to have a hand of cards that show their initiative order, as well as the row or column that they must choose their income from plus a terrain or region type where they're allowed to build should they choose to do so. Now, this sounds restrictive, but it's not very restrictive because you have five cards in your hand with a variety of different uh, images and and things shown on them. So it sets some basic parameters for your turn that you do have to be mindful of when you're selecting what you're going to play. And Interestingly, at the end of the round, after you've played your card, you had five, you're now down to four. When your turn is over, you're going to select a new card from an offering. That is a number of cards that are in a common pool. So at the end of your turn, you choose one. When all is said and done, the last player that gets to take a card from the offering, he'll take his card or she'll take her card, and there will be one left over. That leftover card goes in the middle of the board for the next round, and that determines the region where the scoring's going to oh. happen. So even if you're last in turn order, you can kind of manipulate the next round scoring. How cool is that? That is, uh, that's an interesting mechanic there to be able to get an idea what your benefit is going to be at the end. So do you want to take that one card that will help you right now, or do you want to take the other card for the scoring? So that, that, that makes things pretty tricky there. And it makes the initiative important because if you go first in the turn order, you're going to get to maybe take a location that might be contested, but you're going to have virtually no say. You're going to be hoping and praying that the card for next round is one that benefits you as well. Good compact game plays in, like I said, about an hour. I think I played this thing three, well, I played it twice and I taught it once and tried to play along, but made an early game mistake. It was basically a long for the ride, but Scott, I'm pretty pretty excited to get my hands on a copy of this one. Yeah, I know. Every time I saw you, you seemed to be somewhere near this game. Oh, it was one of the evergreens for me at the con. Doesn't sound like there's many bloody battles or huge strategic decisions. There's decisions that will help you. Is this more of a deeper game or is it on the lighter side? Where does it fall on that balance? Okay, well, it's not the deepest of games, no. Uh, In my limited bit of time playing it, I have a feeling that when I return to it, I'm going to try and build out that 3x3 grid in a little bit more balanced way and pay a bit more attention to what tiles I'm adding because I think the game, I think it allows players to play an open game where you can pursue a number Mm -hmm. of things or a narrow strategy where you're going to focus on one thing like, oh, I'm going to really go up that, uh, that sacrifice track, for example. I went the narrow way, and I don't think I won any of my games of Zapotec uh, over the weekend, but that's okay. I was trying things out and learning the game. Plus, I didn't pay enough attention to the cards that I was playing as far as how they're going to help me achieve end-of-round score, plus set me up for next round. Not super deep. Uh, It is approachable, but there is enough depth there that I don't think it's going to overwhelm most gamers. If you have a if you have a more casual group that's ready for a next step and you want something that's got some meat on the bones but not overwhelming, Zapotec's right on. Seeing that there's only five rounds, would that mm-hmm. be enough? Is it enough to keep heavier gamers into the game or is it too short of a time period? I don't think it's too short. I was pretty fulfilled with the game, but you know what? I can tell that some folks might feel like they had a full meal sitting in front of them and only got to take a few bites. You know mm. what I mean? All right. All right. Now, maybe I'm not very good at Zapotec, but I am pretty sure that this is a game where you just can't do everything. If you don't like a game that ends just when your engine is like, oh, we just fit, hit uh, max capacity, mm-hmm. we're at full throttle, and then it ends. 
you might feel a little unsatisfied with this game being a five-round game and potentially cutting you off just as you feel like you're getting things running. Now, with that in mind, is this a game that you would want to add to your library, or is it something that you're happy to play if someone else has it? Probably more the latter, because I've already played a few times. Scott, you know I don't keep a big collect. I have a ton of games, but like... If I'm being honest, like my rotation, like somebody said, well, how many games do you have that you that you play regularly? There's like 20 mm-hmm. or 25. You know what I mean? Like you got to do something real special to get onto that evergreen shelf of, yeah, that's going to come down every other month or so. Zapotec's a phenomenal game. I don't know that it's going to take that seat yet, but it's going to require some more plays before I make that determination. It's a fun game. I enjoyed it. Okay. So we've got Zapotec. Yeah. Zapotec from Board and Dice. Beware, the Mayans are coming. (laughs) It's that time. Scott, you ready to hear about some top 100 updates? Yes, let's hear it. What has changed in our happy little game world? Okay, top 100 debuts uh, or day twos in this case. It's the second time that we've done this one. Decrypto has gone back into the top 100 at number 100. Just keeps bouncing in and out. New highest peaks. Scott, there's some big, big ones here. Nemesis is up to number 17. We're talking top 20. Speaking of top 20, Dune Imperium is knocking on the door at number 23. Keep on a knocking, buddy. Keep on a knocking. It's not a top 20 game. It's it's on the heels of Wingspan at this point. Nice. And and funny thing is, still, I look at it that that was a game that I was seriously, seriously nervous about because I thought it was just a game that they threw a Dune IP on and that was it. Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated is up to number 34. And Scott, I will warn you, I'm talking about this one in an episode soon to come out because we're almost done. Brendan and Mike and I, we're almost done oh, with great. our Legacy campaign. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, maybe we'll do a side quest and just be all kinds of spoilerific. Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy is up to number 44 mm-hmm. already. And I have the feeling that this thing's got top 10 written all over oh, it. Yeah. Quacks of Quedlinburg up to 63. Paladins of the West Kingdom at 67. Pandemic Legacy Season 0 with a slow climb. It's up to number 93. And we hit our happy birthdays. feel like we should play the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Pax Premier Second Edition. It's been on there for a year. Mechs versus Minions, five years. Feast for Odin, five years. Dominant Species, eleven mm. years. How about that? Wow. Well, enough with that, Scott. We've got a review to talk about. Speaking of things that have been around for a while, uh, Dominant Species after eleven years is starting to collect a little rust. That's the best segue. I see I where you're going with this. I I think we're going to be Thank talking you. about a game called uh, what? Corrosion. Yeah, you got to do the walkthrough for this one. You got it. Corrosion was released in 2021, designed by Stefan Bauer and published by Capstone Games. Corrosion is a game for 1-4 players that plays in about 60-90 to 90 minutes, once you get the rules down. In Corrosion, you're an entrepreneur trying to utilize your factory to be the most efficient between your rivals. During setup, you'll be given a player board to place your chrome machines that you build and a factory floorboard that will be used for one-shot or turning machines. More on those in a minute. During your turn, you will go through four phases. Maintenance, main action, another maintenance phase, and finally, end of turn. I'll explain these phases, but in order for them to make a little more sense in the big picture, I'm going to take them out of order. While setting up, 
you will get resources such as gears, water, and steam to get you started. The main part of setup will be your starting hand of six engineers. Everyone gets six that are similar but are slightly different. This makes for an important asymmetrical start to the game. On the main action, you can play an engineer card or turn the corrosion wheel. These engineers will give you a special ability and the number listed will show how experienced they are. They start out numbered 1 through 3. To make sure that everyone is involved, there is a follow-up mechanic. If someone plays an engineer that completes an action you would find useful, you can play an engineer of the same color, but one number higher. So, if someone plays a blue 2, you can follow their action by playing a blue 3. You give up the action on your card, but you get to copy the action on the card played by your opponent. Many times this is extremely helpful. When you play these cards, they will give you resources such as water or gears or one-shot machines. When the card is played, you will place it on the factory floor equal to the number on the card. Be careful when using these. They will stay on your factory floor until you turn the corrosion wheel and the section that marked X meets your cards. That's when you can return them to your hand. Speaking of the corrosion wheel, you can turn the corrosion wheel instead of playing a card. Your corrosion wheel and factory floorboard are cut up into four sections. 1, 2, 3, and X. Each time that you're given resources or one-shot or turning machines, they will always go in the section marked 3. As you turn the wheel clockwise, anything that ends up in section X is corroded and must be discarded. Time is such an important resource in this game. Definitely a use-it-or-lose-it scenario. But Scott, what do you do with these resources you're accumulating? On the two maintenance phases, you will use these to upkeep your factory. Your factory is made up of one-shot, turning, and chrome machines. Each of these work differently and give you advantages against your opponents. One-shot machines will be built, like everything else, in Section 3 of your factory board, but you need certain resources in order to turn them on. Get these resources, and once the X section turns to where these machines are placed, you will get the benefit. But, like the name says, they are then destroyed after one shot. Be careful. Many times you have one placed, and by the time Section X comes around, you found out that you did not activate it, and your plan is gone in a pile of rust. Turning machines are similar, but one, do not give you a huge advantage. Two, activate every time you turn your corrosion wheel. You will get a lot of resources from them, but once again, once Section X comes up, they are corroded and discarded. See a pattern here? Finally, there are the chrome machines. These machines are made up as three different types, a cogwheel drive, a piston drive, and a chain drive, or as I was taught in my demo of it, the Lisa Simpson drive, Adventure Time drive, and R2-D2 drive. Once you see the game, it'll make sense. These machines are the workhorses of your factory. They are placed on your player board, but once activated, they are good to go for the rest of the game. The trick here is that they only activate when Section X hits a certain spot on your board. So, do you want the powerful abilities they give you, 
or do you want to get a bunch of smaller ones from your other machines? This is a very delicate balance you need to play with when playing this game. Once the end game trigger has occurred, finish the round and count your victory points. This is a game that there is a lot, but to go into everything would take far, far too much time and might confuse things a little bit. Now let's get back to the adventure. Let's give the level up treatment, the 8-bit breakdown, to Corrosion. Smiling, you stand in the center of your factory. The sweet sounds of metal clattering and engines rattling are warming your entrepreneurial heart. Your goal is to build diversified scoring and production engines in order to outrival the other factory owners. However, in the steam-filled air, your biggest enemy is time, because most machines and gears rust away quickly. So you're well advised to produce rust-proof chrome gears and invest in powerful chrome machines. To be successful, you must think carefully about when to deploy your engineers and when to turn your corrosion wheel. Whoever manages this best and scores the most points with their machines and awards wins the game. Well, Scott, thank you for the rules walkthrough of today's review game, Corrosion. As always, we're going to give this one the level up treatment, the 8-bit breakdown, looking at eight different facets of this game to give you our thoughts, starting with bit number one, the art and components. The floor is yours. I like this one a lot lot of different things here you have a lot of the gears that come out the arc is is very nice i mean i have a lot of fun with it i love the fact that whenever you're looking at the chrome modules that you're putting into your engine i love that the mm -hmm. person teaching it gave us three different names for them they're the r2d2 <laughs> the adventure time and the lisa simpson if you play this game it's perfect you will know exactly what i'm talking about but yeah, the art and components are really good. The rondelle that each person has that they play and they twist their dial, that's a neat thing there that you're not all based on the same rondelle. It's really your decision when you want it to turn. Um, it's personal rondelle. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a nice thing because that's something normally you have one big rondelle on the main board and that's it. But this one, everyone has their own. The gears that you have are... The, they're workable, but if you get a chance, I would definitely say upgrade to the metal chrome gears. There's just something about the sound of the metal whenever you're playing this game that, that really, really works out well. The nice thing is with all of the artwork of all the engineers, if you notice it, they are all women in this. And that's a very, mm -hmm. very cool thing there, just showing uh, the diversity and things like that, incl inclusivity that they're looking at making this game. Plus also the cards you have, everything that's set up with your board that you have, the cards and the different modules that you put in clip into place. It's just so cool how that works out. So they really did put a lot of thought into this whenever they were making this game. Whenever we first played it, we had stuff laying all over the place. We had no idea. But then just <laughs> like this game, it was like we're slowly like, oh, wait, this goes here. Oh, 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 and this goes here. And we were building our own machine as it was there while we were playing the game. So it was a nice little bit of discovery that we were having while we were playing. 
I agree with everything you said there. You know what? Nothing in the game component-wise or art-wise to me was over the top, with the exception of your upgraded chrome gears. But those are upgraded. That's not what comes in the base box. But you will note things like the little gears, the smaller gears that you don't get to upgrade. They're just what come. They're like chits. They're not rounded off tokens with a picture of a gear on them. They're actually rigid. Mm -hmm. You punch it out and the edges are, you know, they, they look like a gear. The machines that you can build into your big machine, those temporary machines that you can put on the outside of it, to your point, it's not just a square. It could have just been a square, but it's got like the one's got a little divot cut into it so you know to place it on this side. The other one's got an edge cut out of it so that you know that it fits here. Everything, not only is their iconography intuitive, but the design of their components made it a little bit easier to figure out what mm. goes where. Yes, I yes. appreciated that. So bit number two, the theme and immersion of corrosion. Well, I will be honest, at no point in time did I ever feel like I was an actual engineer building a machine. <laughs> but, but that being said, I was really immersed in this game because I was looking at what other modules were available, where I could put them. It really drew me into this game. I was really immersed in this game. There was no point in time whenever I'm just like playing this game and looking to see what someone else is doing. You're in this whole hog. There are so many decisions to be made and timing is of the utmost of when you can do things and when you should do things. Whenever you turn your rondelle, that will activate certain modules. It will destroy certain modules. There's a lot going on in this that you really need to keep track of. So you are deeply immersed in this game. This is not one that, sorry about the parental uh, thing on this, you can't half-ass this game. This is a game you really need to pay attention to as to what you're doing. But in no time did I ever feel bored by having to pay attention to this. I was always intrigued with what was going on, what my options were, and what I could do. So that I was always involved with the game as we played. Maybe a good way to summarize, to your point, it's not a game that's going to get you thematically immersed as far as like the creative side of your brain, the storytelling side of mm -hmm. your brain. We're not going to convince anyone that they're going to feel the sweat on their forehead and, and see the orange rust on their gloves. This is a Euro, but it's not soulless. And you know where it comes from is you turn that crank on your engine, that, that little rondelle, you turn that piece – Things are happening. Your engineers are coming back to your hand and you're getting uh, your temporary machines are going to trigger. You're one step closer to your other machine triggering. And once it makes a full rotation, you're back to being able to activate your entire personal tableau. So you do get the sensation of, oh, when I crank this, oh, things are things are working for me. And that does engage the brain. You're absolutely right. So let's talk complexity. Complexity, whenever I first tried this game out at PAX, I'm like, this is... I don't know if this is for me. This is this is a bit rough. But then the more I thought about it, I'm like, no, I don't I I need something of this weight in my library. I definitely need this. So I picked it up. We played it that night and once again, I'm just like, oh, this is this might be out of my realm until we hit that midpoint of the game whenever everything kind of fell into place and we're like, oh, uh oh. Of uh, mm -hmm. this is what happens here, and this is what you need to do. And you saw the engines really coming together. That was such a big thing 
playing it. Yeah, my, we went a half an hour of, wait, what happened? How do I get this? What happens when? Yes, yeah. Where did that of, come from? What do I have to spend to get that? There, that will come into our next bit. Don't things. trust me. Right. Playing it the second time, it was much easier. It allowed me to enjoy the complexity of it, not be put off by the complexity. And in subsequent plays, we've been able to really like, okay, now I know how to do everything. Let's find a strategy. Because I tell you what, there's a bunch of them. Before we get to that, though, let's talk rule book, bit number four. This one's on you, sir. <laughs> now, I know your rule book first was being taught how to play at PAX, but then you had the responsibility of teaching the group. And I know you've had your head in that book. Tell us about yes, it. Yes. Looking through that book, it is busy. There's a lot of stuff in this in very close quarters. I think it could have been laid out a little bit better. The rule book covers everything that you need, but it's just one of those things that you look at it in just like the game coming into the game, you're kind of, whoa, there's a lot here. But mm -hmm. once you take that time to look at it, then it starts opening itself up and you can get where they're going with things. So it's it's a, a two-way street here with, one, you got to put your time into it, reading the rule book to make sure you get everything. Plus, also, I think that the layout could have been a little bit more open for you to play with. Fair enough. Didn't suck, but it wasn't the greatest rule book you've ever seen. Right, right. You learned it from me, and I apologize for our first time through it. <laughs> uh, but what did you think about it? Boy, it took us 45 minutes to wrap our collective heads around that game. But when we did, Scott, we went from zero to 60 mm -hmm. in a turn or two. I mean, we were just, no pun intended here, but we went from zero to 60. <laughs> we were a well-oiled machine we were at that point firing on all cylinders. <laughs> yeah. God, I feel dirty. Uh, no, every, every pun you can think of. No, that, that is what happened. There was a long time. Of, okay, wait a minute. How do I connect this dot? How do I connect that dot? And then once we do, it's like, okay, I can see the picture now. Right. Uh, it has me wanting to come back to the game more to see what other machines I can add to my player board, what other combos I can assemble next to. I had a combo going where I could turn the crank, bring back guys that would create steam, and I could expend steam when I did that for points. And then on my next turn, I would just play that guy again that created the steam. So it was like every other turn. Okay, so if I play this card, then crank my machine, I can bounce this to my hand. Like it almost felt like that Johnny Magic player in me coming out like, look what neat thing I did. <laughs> you build the machine that every time it you tick your uh, rondelle all the way back to you, to the home location and pointing at your, uh, your personal tableau, mm -hmm. you had that machine on there that would score you three points. Right. And for a while I was convinced, I said, well, Scott's just going to win because he's going to every four turns, he's just ticking on three points on top of everything else. I don't recall if it was enough to get the win, but man, it'd be awesome to, to see like what else you can do in the confines of that game. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, not that that has anything to do with the learning curve. The learning curve is tough. It took us a while to wrap our heads around it. Let's get to bit number six, the replayability and variability. Well, actually, I want to go back I to the learning spoiled. curve real quick here for one second. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, whenever you're saying about getting that part that I got three points each time, it will come back to the beginning. The great mm -hmm. thing about it was whenever you looked at our end scores, no one really ran away with the game. No. They were all pretty close, and we were all doing completely different strategies. Vastly yes. different strategies. So that's, that's what has stuck in my head. Yeah, that is really very, very cool there. Now, to the replayability and variability, as with all games that come out with different cards you're going to add to your hand and different cards are revealed at different times, 
yes, you're going to have variability. You're going to be able to replay this game a lot of different ways. Whenever you turn your rondel, that's going to be a big difference there. I mean, depending on what cards you're playing. How you've built your engine, sure. Exactly. So I think that there is a lot of variability built into this. Now, the replayability, that's all on you, really. My first few game plays of this game, I have loved it. I really have. I've grown to love this game more and more as I've played it. So this is one that definitely I am going to be bringing and actively enticing people to play this game. So replayability is definitely built in there for, for me. It follows a, a rule that many games do nowadays where you have your, your rule set in place and then you inject a number of variables to keep a game fresh. In this case, end game scoring, chrome machines, temporary machines, one-off machines, mechanic cards that you can acquire, the end game scoring, which I think I already said. But it's replayable and that I think the players are going to want to come back and find the next big combo. Not only does it yeah. just inject all of these things, but they come up in different orders. You're going to be selecting different ones and they interact with each other. In unique and different ways each time. Like, I, I get the feeling that they put a lot of time and energy into making sure that, like, card X is going to have card Y somewhere in there that just works like a charm with it. Like, P, we're going to put in peas, the, the, the peas machine, and then we're going to put in the carrots machine, the peanut butter machine and the jelly machine. Mm -hmm. And while you might see the peanut butter machine in one game, you, boy, why I'm going off on a tangent here. But you know what I'm saying? There are a ton of little things to discover. Like, oh, look at how this worked with that one. That's what's got me wanting to get this back on the table. Yeah, you may be looking for that peanut butter and jelly, but you may have the peanut butter and banana unveil itself. Like, whoa, that is wait a, a minute. subpar combo. <laughs> Scott, how about downsides? You've been uh, talking pretty good about corrosion. What are the downsides here? I, I did run into a little bit of problem with the boards warping a little bit. So that was kind of upsetting. Well, that was more along the lines of the actual product itself. As far as playing it, I think, like I said, the rule book is a little bit of a bear to get through. And mm -hmm. getting through that first play, that is a make or break type of time for people. Because it's either going to be one of those things that you love the time that you're learning it, or this is a slog that you're just trying to get through. You got to kind of want to like it when you're learning it you got to kind of have that just, you know what i want this to be my next game because if you don't if you just sit down like hey what are you guys playing yeah sure i'll join you oh yeah 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 this not knowing what you're getting into yeah as you said it's like it could be a slog yeah that's really the main thing that sticks in my mind but then also yeah this is a thinking game this isn't a game that you can kind of go on autopilot you actively have to play this game I think the early stages of the game are very much about acquiring things to get a combo built up, and that can be kind of sloggy. Like, I think Terraforming Mars without the Prelude expansion. Yeah. Like, the first few turns are just kind of setting up to get something going. Turning on the heat and waiting for the water to boil. Uh, it's a long game, for that matter. Two and a half hours, I think, for four players, which we might be able to get down to two hours now that we know how to play oh, yeah. it in yeah, four easily. players. Yeah, easily. It's still going to be a long game, and I don't mind that, but I can see where the argument could be made that once you get your combo set up, you're going to keep hammering it home for the next 45 minutes. And I'll tell you what, Teacher Ryan met up with us at PAX, and he got to join in this game with us. And one of the things that he said that I was like, yeah, you know what, he might, he might be onto something here. There's very little player interaction, and they have that following a mechanic rule. Like if I play a green two, anybody else can play a green mechanic of higher than two to follow what I did. 
that feels shallow. It feels like an interaction that that was. He said it feels like they added that in because they got feedback right. that the game wasn't interactive enough. I'm not saying that that's what they did, but to his point, there's not a lot of interaction. In fact, beyond that specific example, there isn't interaction. It's strictly my brain doing my thing versus your brain doing your thing. Yeah, and trying to get the parts that I need before you do. Having said all that, we bring it on home to bit number eight. Scott, Corrosion, was it fun and who is it for? Well, for a game talking about oxidizing metal, yes, it was fun. I had a great time (laughs) playing this. I kind of went into it like, I'm going to make myself like this game. But somewhere along the lines, just like in When Harry Met Sally, they realized that they were meant to be together. So halfway through, I figured out that me and Corrosion, we were meant to be together. So I'm going to have to cue that music again. (laughs) (laughs) I had a great time with it. I really enjoyed it. Like I said, this is one that I will actively put out there for people to play, that I want people to play this game with me. Who's it for? This is not for your casual group. This is for your heavier game players. This is for your people that are competitive with playing games. This is very important to keep that in mind. You don't want to bring something out where you're playing Carcassonne and then maybe a game of Ticket to Ride and, hey, let's jump into Corrosion. No, that is a recipe for disaster right there. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind whenever you want to introduce that to people. But yeah, I thoroughly loved it, thoroughly enjoyed this game. Yeah, I thought Corrosion was really good too. One that I would probably buy if you didn't already have it. Uh, I have the groups that would enjoy biting into a game this meaty, but not everyone does. So who's this for? It's a slow burn for a while. And for some players, that combo engine payoff is going to be noticeably weaker than for others or might come off that way. This is for your gamers that want something a little bit more substantial. I actually, <laughs> I wrote down Ticket to Ride too. I said if your group regularly breaks out Ticket to Ride... Uh, you know, and I put code names. Games on the later end of the spectrum. It's entirely possible that corrosion is going to get their eyes glossed over and not go over too well. It doesn't have laugh out loud moments. It doesn't have scheming, swindling, negotiating. The enjoyment, though, the reward, the payoff comes from the satisfaction we get from creating a plan and following through with it and seeing it perform well. And that is a legit satisfaction that I think a lot of gamers prefer. I say Corrosion's an excellent game for me and for gamers who enjoy a solid thinker, but I can see it missing the mark for a more rowdy, perhaps more casual crowd. Great way of putting it. Sounds good. Scott Awkward Guess is a game similar to Clue in that players are investigating the murder of Mr. Walton using a set of cards as determined by the smart deck that comes with the game, assuring that no two plays are quite the same and that a concrete solution is available with a huge range of cards that might be brought into any given gameplay. One year ago today, we reviewed Awkward Guess, and today we look back on it. Scott, do you see a future game day where you're bringing this game to the table? I really want to. I mean, I look at this. I don't have many deduction games in my library. So it's one that, I mean, number one, I mean, it's got my last name in it. So I've got to try and like the game. But yes. um, the thing about Although it Although you get killed in it. Well, true. But hey, I'm the center of attention, though. 
But the thing about it, though, is that I am not a good person at these type of deduction games. So Mm -hmm. right away, I'm at a disadvantage of that. There may be other people that do that that will bring me up to their level to play the game, then I'll get the same level of enjoyment. But if I had to bring it out and push it, like, let's play this game right now, I don't know if I actually would push it to be the game to play. I would have it with me, and then someone else would suggest it. It's one that is going to stay in my library for another year, and then I'll reconsider and see what happens to it then. Thinking of that, do you see a future game day where you're saying, hey, let's play Awkward Guests? No. (laughs) (laughs) I can admit that I don't like this style of game to begin with, but man, man, Scott, you factor in that funky art and the brown palette. It didn't do anything for me, and it actively wanted me to not like it, and I don't. (laughs) So let's move on to, if you didn't own this game, would you buy it? So Scott, if you didn't own Awkward Guests, would you go out and buy it? If it was on sale, just because of the whole thing of Mr. Walton, that would just be a fun little thing to add to my collection, but it wouldn't be something I would actively add to my collection if it was the killing of Mr. Speedy. (laughs) You know what? I wouldn't go out and buy it myself. I don't own it. I had it on my wish list before we played because I was intrigued by it, and I heard tons of reviews saying, oh, it's the best game in recent, you know, one of the greatest games since sliced bread we all had that aha moment when we realized how our game tastes line up with some of our favorite reviewers and the best thing that awkward guests did for me was to help me calibrate how well my tastes line up with some of my favorite reviewers and who i'm taking recommendations from it immediately came off my buy list was not for me scott would you recommend awkward guests I would recommend it to someone who likes this type of game because there is a lot of replayability with this. The way you play it with the cards that come out and how you play the cards, it makes it for an interesting gameplay for someone who likes mysteries. For someone who's into Euros and things like that, no. I I could not under good conscience say, hey, you should add this to your collection. So I would have to say that that long-winded approach there would be no. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in the same camp because my first thought was, well, I guess, you know, if somebody really likes a, a, a game of the style like Clue, they're going to like Awkward Guess. And I thought Clue, you know, like something more simple. You know, I have nothing against Clue. And my it's funny, my wife's been wanting to play Clue. And I'm like, break it out, break it out, next get together. I'll play it. I got nothing against it. But if your group's playing Eclipse and then Brass and then Root in your game day, this is going to be, a, we'll say, a step back in complexity, a step back in game style. I can't recommend it either. Fun fact, Scott, we did our, our list, our top games of all the games that were reviewed last year. And I think, I think we both had awkward guests listed at the very bottom. I think we did as well, yes. Hi guys, I'm Andrew Davidson with AsForMyAbility.com. Let's play a little game, shall we? Now, the object of this game is to fill in the blank. I will start a phrase, but then it is your sole responsibility to finish it by filling in the blank. Let's give it a shot. You ready? Revenge is a dish best served. Here's another one. I keep my friends close, but my enemies... 
Now, I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts you got both of, if not at least one of those fill-in-the-blank phrases correct. That is, my friend, how you know that a piece of work has truly permeated the cultural zeitgeist and has become a part of our cultural lexicon. There is no denying the influence and praise for Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 stunning and iconic film, The Godfather. Coppola's movie is a masterpiece, so much of an influential film that even if you've never seen The Godfather, you probably have used or heard the previous phrases at some point in your lifetime. But hold on, wait, this is not where the story begins. This is a story about a man named Mario Puzo. Unfortunately, Puzo's gallbladder is about to burst. He is in a tremendous amount of pain, but somehow with a bit of luck, he manages to dial for a taxi cab to drive him to the hospital. He successfully reaches his destination, but sadly, he struggles to get out of the vehicle, falling onto the side of the street with his back flush against the ground and his feet sticking inside the cab. Puzo, with a busted gallbladder, mind you, looks up at the beautiful night sky. A slight trickle of rain begins to fall on his face, and Puzo realizes that he's going to die. He's laying with his back on the filthy streets of New York City, and his legs still jammed inside the taxi cab, and he is going to die. No, wait, hold up. We can't start the story there. Okay, this is a story about the American Mafia. On October 15th, 1920, Puzo was born on the west side section of Midtown Manhattan, known as Hell's Kitchen. According to journalist and Mario Puzo scholar Mark Seal, Puzo stated in an interviews that while he watched a lot of mafia comings and goings within friends, family, and neighbors, he never grew up directly touching the mafia life. Seal's book, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, the epic story of the making of The Godfather, states that while not being directly involved in the mafia crime syndicate, he developed his own proclivities and vices, writing and gambling. Despite writing three novels that were colossal failures, and before getting to work on what would eventually be titled The Godfather, Puzo racked up a gambling debt the size of cathedrals. If there was anything two or more people could bet on, Puzo was always down to play. Now, whether if he had any actual money to his name or not, well, that's a different story. Having zero to little fame as a writer, drowning in gambling debt, Puzo, laying in the gutter of a dirty street in the rain, looking up at the stars, decided it was now or never to go out on a limb and write a book about the Italian-American mafia. Puzo sat down with a myriad of mafia men to discuss their lives, their families, and more importantly, some of the tragic and traumatic experiences they've had. Puzo was about to write the perennial novel of his lifetime, and he did so with a bead of sweat on his brow. I mean, Puzo may not have had a gallbladder, but he sure did have some cojones. Even though names were changed, you can only imagine how the mafia took the information that a quote-unquote fictional novel would hit the bookstores, bringing the lifestyles and operations of the mafia to John Q. Public. Puzo felt he would be persona non grata in his own neighborhood. He even felt like he would be killed at some point. 
How Puzo created the titular character is quite interesting. The more unique lines of Don Corleone, the patriarch of the Corleone Empire, were directly taken from platitudes Puzo's mother said while he was growing up. For example, when the Don says, a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Whew, I don't know about you, but I can picture a mother saying something like that to instruct their son on how to become a good person, how to be a good father. Also, leave the gun, take the cannolis is the most iconic impromptu line in all of American film. The line is not in the book, nor was it in the screenplay. It was 100% made up on the spot by the character Clemenza. However, during the time period, mafia fiction was incredibly huge, but not incredibly popular. Puzo was just a drop in an ocean of writers working within such a specific genre. To quote from Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, what made the novel distinct from a popular genre at the time was that instead of being about men in the mafia, the Godfather is about mafia men in families. This is embodied in the line Don Corleone says when he says to, quote, never go against the family, unquote. Puzo created a sense of familiarity with his readers, no matter who read the book. What Puzo pitched to the publishers was completely different than the prior mafia narratives. Okay, wow, that was a lot of unplanned alliteration. <clears throat> for this, he was awarded $410,000 for the paperback rights, setting the record for a paperback advance. One executive passed a synopsis letter to the higher-ups within the company to brief them on what projects they're taking on and a one-sentence synopsis about the project. You know, the head honchos wanted to know how and on what their money was being spent. Now, afraid of losing his job for paying such a large advancement on yet another mafia book, instead, the executive wrote, Puzo's saga is about a king and his three sons. Wow. If you think about it, he's not all that far off. Bravo. Bravo. In 1969, The Godfather was released. Three years later, The Godfather film adaptation hit the screen and received numerous awards for adapted screenplay, set design, directing, and of course, Marlon Brando's performance as Don Corleone. The film was such a hit that The Godfather spawned two sequels, making it a trilogy, and also source material for video and board games. The Godfather, Corleone's Empire, designed by Eric M. Lang and published by Cool Mini or Not, is a cutthroat competitive worker placement game with a little bit of area control around the edges. For clarity, from here on in, I'll refer to the game as The Godfather, as to not get confused with the novel or the film franchise. In The Godfather, players are running their own mafia families within the Don Corleone empire. The object of the game is to collect as much money as possible by completing jobs, bribing city officials, whacking members of your competition, and controlling the five boroughs of New York City for the never-ending turf war. A game of The Godfather lasts for four rounds. Now, that sounds like a quick game, but I assure you there are quite a few moving parts going on here. Within each round are five phases. 
open new business, family business, the meat and potatoes of the game, turf war, the area control aspect, bribery, and tribute to the Don. Now, I know what you're thinking. Collect a lot of money for the win. Lots of games like that. Okay, cool, cool. I can handle that. However, one fundamental rule I instruct all my players during a teaching session of the game is that money is worth diddly squat at the end of the game. You see, each player receives a little tin box in their player color. At the end of the game, only money within a player's tin box is counted. Now I know what you're thinking. Okay, I'll just slide money I get from doing jobs into my case. Okay, cool, cool. I can handle that. And here, my friends, is where the brilliance of the Godfather is found. You see, in order for players to put money from their hand into their tin boxes, they must take an action on the board. That is, if another player has not already grabbed that spot during the worker placement phase. By adding one more step, plucks the godfather out of the mediocre waters and into the next echelon towards the conflation of gameplay, theme, and strategy. Oh, and did I forget to mention this game is cutthroat? I've played all too many games of the godfather where the action and decisions of the other players completely deconstruct and destroy my well-laid plans towards a victory. In this game, just like being in the mafia, you gotta stay sharp. The Godfather is a tight, unforgiving experience. As previously mentioned, the actions of other players can make or break someone's strategy. This forces you not only to stay involved in the action, even when it's not your turn, but to learn to roll with the punches, to pivot, to call an audible, to change the game plan in the middle of a working a strategy. I highly recommend The Godfather, Corleone's Empire, for three reasons. It's incredibly fun, it's a good gateway game, and the theme matches the mechanics quite well. And that, friends and well-wishers, is an offer you can't refuse. Once again, my name is Andrew Davidson. Thanks for stopping by my academy to level up. I hope I've given you something to think about. Andrew, thank you for the positive statements about our game. Do not worry. We'll bring plenty of cannoli over. <laughs> I showed out. All right. I'm never cotton. talking in, with cotton balls in my mouth again. <laughs> oh, Andrew, thank you so much for the Academy segment. Good game. This one is Godfather. Scott, have you played? I have not, but the way that fates work in the world, it's really kind of weird because we had a white elephant uh, giveaway or uh, Secret Santa thing at mm-hmm. SCG Hobby. Cool, and guess cool. what I happened to go home with? Oh, well, I already know. And guess uh, who's the person that made that gift? Did, did you know that's the <laughs> gift that I contributed? I did not realize that. So yeah, I, I wasn't there. Um, <laughs> gave it and I was like, you know what, just... I don't need anything in return. If somebody else wants to participate, did somebody end up participating and they, they were able to uh, actually yes, because Tim of it? did it and See, we had I a little good. pass around. So it worked out really well. Uh, we only had a few people doing it, but still it's, it's something that I hope that we can turn into an annual thing. And it was a nice thing to just open up a present and be able to pass along something that we've played in the past and feel that someone else would get a kick out of playing that in the future. 
Well, Godfather, solid game. The, you know what? It reminded me a lot whenever I played it because uh, I had played Blood Rage that one time way, way back. And then I played Godfather and I was like, this is a lot like Blood Rage. And you know what it is? It's that Eric Lang influence. Like you could tell. You mm-hmm. could tell playing it. Okay, this is an Eric Lang game. And you know what? It's a bit of a bit of an underdog, kind of a hidden gem. Well, not hidden. You know, folks know of this game, but compared with other blockbuster Eric Lang games, this one's a little more under the radar, and it's good. It just looks amazing. And the fact that they have a horse head miniature, I mean, <laughs> you gotta love this. I, I'm really looking forward to digging into it. Yeah, this this could almost be considered a lost loot segment as well, too, because yeah, people know about it, but it never seems to be at the forefront of conversations. No, I think they produced a whole bunch of them. And there was a while where you could go into like TJ Maxx or Kohl's and you could find, like even to this day, I bet you if we go in BGG, you could probably find Godfather for 25 bucks or less. The mm-hmm. minis alone, the little suitcases that are tin, like there's a ton of game in there. And people are dropping $100 on Kickstarters don't have half as much as Godfather. One man's trash is another man's treasure. So I definitely look at this as a little bit of treasure adding to my collection. Well, thank you again, Andrew. Adventures, check out aspermyability.com. Learn a little bit more about uh, the man behind the Academy segment. Hey, Adventurers. For our discussion topic today, we were going to go into what we have posted, but with Christmas and the holidays going on, so many people are out doing different things. They don't have a chance to really respond to our things. So we want to give everyone a, a longer time to look over it and give us some more responses. So we really have a lot to talk about on the next time. So mm-hmm. before it completely leaves our memory, I wanted to go back one more time here to PAX Unplugged and look at it through the eyes of a person who went to their first PAX, their first game con. And Boom. see what they thought. And that was Patrick. So, Patrick, yeah. you're in the hot seat here today. Yeah. Well, I have been to, I've been to Origins for magic tournaments. Before. Okay. Uh, so, I, I've been in, in the rooms, but I've never been there like specifically seeking out board games. And, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to go to cons in recent years. And it's like, I don't need that. I, you know, I, I'll just play my games in my groups. This is the first time I was like, yeah, okay, let's go. Let's. Let's do it. <laughs> Namely, it came down to you saying, yeah, I have a room. All you got to do is pay me, which I still haven't done. <laughs> oh, man. We'll get to it. I know where you live. And, and, All right. And, well, hey, what do you want to talk about? With what we just talked with with Andrew, we have ways of making you pay. Hey. <laughs> anyway, first of all, I know whenever I'm getting ready to go to a game con, that week before, those first few days... There's like no talking to me. I mean, I'm on like vacation mode. I'm in game mode. What was your time like the first few days before you're leaving? What was going through your head? Oh, well, there was definitely excitement and anticipation building up. We had the the text chain going, what with Nikki, you know, my, mm-hmm. we went and then went through the war wagon, you know, she was the driver and she had a couple other people coming along. So we're all texting each other back and forth and plans and, you know, Hungry Gamer was messaging me. So have all these uh, different folks talking about, you know, oh, what are we going to do? Are you going to make it there Thursday? And I'm telling you what. I said it last episode, I didn't think I was going to be able to go. Like right at the last minute, my Christy and I sat down with Sarah and we were like, 
we're both going to be gone this weekend. It's going to be three days at grandma's. And she just started sobbing. She's like, I don't think I can do it. It was the saddest thing. I said to my wife, I was like, look, if, if I can't go, you know, there's, it's not that big a deal. And she looks at me squaring. She's like, oh no, you're going. And I was like, oh, I'm the best wife, wife ever. So, definitely an excitement. Uh, want to make sure everything's shored up at home. You know, it, with both of us being gone, there's always a little nervousness with leaving a little one behind. Like, okay, does she have her school stuff? And, you know, at the end of the day, our, our parents have been parents longer than we've been parents. They knew how to take care of Sarah, no problem. So, uh, definitely excitement building. So, what were your expectations of what you were going to experience whenever you went to PAX? You know, I didn't know. I, I mean, having been to some of the, the, the previous ones for, for Magic tournaments, like I knew it would be big. I knew there would be a lot of people, but I never like went into the vendor area. I, my expectation was that it would be not like a flea market, but a marketplace. Like you walk through and mm-hmm. people are going to try and sell you games. And, oh, there's a place over there where you can go play games if, if people know how or if you brought some games, that sort of thing. But you know, my expectations were also, we'll say, tempered or, or made more calibrated by you and by some of the folks that I was going with, like, you know, I kind of had an idea of what to expect from the experienced folks around me. So, oh, well, you won't need this. You won't. I, I didn't bring any games. For, no, I, I lie. I brought mm. two games because I was like, well, I, this one I want to play with the whole group and this one Scott and I can play in the hotel room. I brought uh, Blitzkrieg and Q. Yes. That was it because I thought, well, I'm going to need to be able to take things back. There's going to be plenty of games there and I'm told I'll be able to, to learn how to play them. So, you know, I went in there with the the mindset of I want to go and learn as many games as I can because I can learn them without having to read a rule book, <laughs> and I want to reach out to a bunch of uh, the, the the publishers and, and the distributors that are there, introduce ourselves, and also connect a little bit with some of the other social media and uh, we'll say content creation personalities, which we were able to do. Yes, yes, we did. That was that was an absolute blast. Now. What were certain experiences that you had there that really stuck out in your mind? You know what? Day one, I made like I made a beeline to Monster Fight Club's booth, having just talked with mm-hmm. John in the previous episode, went right over to that Borderlands booth, you know, shook hands with John, who's by the way, remarkably tall. Oh my I god. I was not expecting that. <laughs> I am not short, but I was looking way up to be able to talk to John. Uh, I got to play a demo of it and uh you know, that first interaction of like, wow, I just connected with someone that stuck out the media night Thursday for the the content creators. We got there and it's like, oh, there was there was food like we could just go eat this food. It's available. <laughs> Everybody got a drink ticket. I was like, wow, I they don't really know us and they're giving me a ticket for a beer. OK, OK, I like this group. And uh, that's where we got to finally touch base. It was the first time I met Tim in person and Keith in person. Got to mm-hmm. shake their hands and say hi, you know, formally. So, you know, that definitely stuck out amongst tons of others. I love Eschaton and being able to actually meet Adam there was just phenomenal. So definitely connecting with a bunch of the designers of the games that, you know, before you only know them by name or maybe you haven't even met them before. And now it's like, oh, that's the guy. That's the guy. That's really cool. The biggest things that like, wow, that's going to be a memory that sticks with me, though, is like that core group. When we were just chilling in the hotel lobby with Mm -hmm. Nikki, Josh came up to meet with us, for example, and Gary was in there. Just having that group, Melissa was was with us as well, just being able to sit down and play games casually. You know, there's this big event going on and here you are kind of nestled in your corner and everybody's having a good time and just playing some games like, I'm never going to forget this moment. One of the nice things I know whenever we were playing there, the one night we were playing games and there was a 
three guys sitting at a table next to us playing games and just the idea of, oh, what'd you think of that one? How did that stand out for you? And talking to them and everyone was just happy to talk about anything they were doing. They were talking about any sort of game and you're all, it's just such a cool experience of being in this room with all these people that have the same interests as you and Mm -hmm. being able to just say, Vlado Travato, and everyone's just not going like, bless you, but everyone knows exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. It's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I tell you what, some of the the, the things that stuck out are not playing games. Like there wasn't a, oh, I played this game. That is not the thing that stuck. I played a lot of great games, but no one game like the experience of playing it stuck out. We ran late the one day because we went to Reading Market. We got that uh, like Creole seafood, like oh yes, breakfast. yes. The one day, and it took like half an hour to get to get my food. But you know what? I'm always going to remember that. Like just being in the market, it was warm. A lot of people moving around. They got good food, good smells. Sat down. We had breakfast together before going over there. Like in my mind at the time, I was like, "Oh man, we're missing out on con time." In hindsight, I'm like, "Who cares? You're getting a pretty cool life experience with a buddy here." Con, you know, the cons could be there all day. What's 20 minutes of it? Uh, that's that's really what stuck out to me. Well, going to it again or going to Origins with the podcast and everything, mm-hmm. what do you think you would do differently next time? As far as going as a visitor, I don't know that I would change much. I feel like you helped me prep pretty good. Uh, we had some canned soup and cereal. So, like, we were able to <laughs> eat pretty easily. And, like, I went on a full belly every day, so I wasn't starving or anything. Plenty, you know, plenty of nourishment throughout the day. I think I would make a little bit more time to, like, learn more games, uh, maybe a little less browsing and a little more playing. And I made it an issue, especially that second day. I spent the entire mm-hmm. day just, okay, I'll play this one. Okay, I'll play that one. Ryan met up with me, taught me Jamaica. He taught, that's all I did all day. I think I would try and prioritize a little bit more time, even relaxing with friends in the evening, like the folks that are part of that core group that, you know, they're, they're giving you their time and whatnot to really prioritize. And I, I think we did. But that being a very memorable moment, I'd like to to maybe prioritize that more for the next one. But man, from the media side, that's where it's like, oh, okay. Uh, first things first, Scott, we got to get a damn media badge. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, I, I'm tempted to make two videos just so we could get you know six thousand views per video and be like, there, see, we're legit. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I think next time we'll, we'll prioritize that and maybe, you know, talk with some of the other content creators that we've met and be like, okay, what do you do? How did you get your media badge? And and I think when I apply to say, okay, here's how many downloads we have. If we say like, we've hosted Stagmire and Monster Fight Club and we've had Thunderworks on this show, like we know these people were part of this, this group. I, I think we could get that. And I think that's going to give us access to some of the more behind the scenes things that we got to dabble in a good bit. Mm-hmm. But there were some things that we couldn't do because we just bought regular old passes and we, we didn't even – I think we applied late to be honest with you with the media badge. But it is what it is. I'd like to schedule more interviews you know, from the podcast side if we could take the field mic and be able to like, okay, let's – we just played your game. Let's talk about it now and just have this episode done. Right. And I think that'd be really cool. Kind of take the adventurers into that room with the podcast, with that designer – live from pack get that discussion right then and there i think that'd be a lot of fun it's one of those things that you really want to plan out for and get things in place sometimes you can do things on the fly but it's better to have things planned because you have unlimited time in a way but you're also limited by the time 
so many things that I have, like thinking back to the origins I went to and the packs I went to, I agree with you. Sure, I played some games. I had a good time. But it was all the connections that I made and the laughs I had with people I were with. That was such a much more important part of the That's what stuck experience. with you. Yeah. Yeah. I know I am definitely looking forward to more of those in the future. Who knows where we'll show up for the next one. But I know me definitely. I, you said you had a great wife for uh, saying that you're going to this. Origins is during our family vacation. Oh, my wife has already said, no, you go to Origins. Oh, so should I be prioritizing Origins or Gen Con or both? Well, I if you're going know. to Origins, I'll make it an issue to try and get to Origins. Gen Con normally happens whenever I'm doing my Renaissance thing. So I normally can't mm. make it to that. Origins, uh, I know some other people have done it. Hey, Jamie from Secret Cabal, I'm stealing your thunder here, but... Yeah, it is. It's like summer camp for gamers. You okay. go and you see people. It, it, it's hysterical. I drive to Columbus, Ohio, and I see people that I haven't seen all year that live maybe 20 minutes away from me. So go figure. <laughs> yeah. Well, Scott, 2021 packs in the books. I think that's where we're going to leave it as far as the podcast go. Maybe we'll reference it going forward because we played a ton of games and they'll be coming up in upcoming episodes, upcoming reviews and whatnot. For now, we've come to the end of episode 43. How have you leveled up since we last spoke? Well, after all the mental abuse I got from you. There was a lot. Yeah, and, and what I got from other people talking about it and everything. I broke down and I picked up Borderlands for Xbox. Yes. Now yes. I haven't played it yet. I have it no. sitting here. It just came yesterday. Which one did you get? I just got the base one. I just because original Borderlands. Yes. Yeah, so I just grabbed okay, that. Okay. I didn't want to go into it and then have people say, "Oh, you got that one. Oh, that's not the good one." I'm just going basic. That's it. Okay. So that's fair. Got that, and hopefully a little bit later today, I'm going to be popping that in and giving it a try. I'm. Dipping my toe into the video game of the Kickstarter, we were really, really pleased to interview John with and stuff like that. So I am going to try and figure out what all the excitement of Borderlands is. Next time I see you, you're going to have a full-grown beard. <laughs> Your teeth will be yellowed. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well, I hope you enjoy it. And I know you had to have leveled up, so how did you level up? Yes, sir. Meeting up with Josh, meeting up with Ryan, and meeting up with Hungry Gamer, Will Brown at PAX. Getting to put a, a name and, well, getting to put a face to these names, aside from the face that I see through a computer screen, but mm -hmm. getting to play a game with them in person kind of makes it all feel real. You know, it's, sometimes it's hard for me to connect the dots that like, oh, that's that's a person over there. That's not just somebody else that does their own thing, collecting their stats and trying to, no, there's, that's a human, you know, we're, we're buddies, we're pals now and being able to, to make those connections. That was phenomenal. That's my level up. That sounds really good. Adventurers, we hope you've had a wonderful year. We hope that you've leveled up with us all through these past 12 months, and we look forward to much more next year and lots more stories from you as to how you leveled up as well in your real life. Hey, adventurers, don't forget, January 15th, mark your calendars, are going to be at Ruckus Cafe in Shaler. Come on down and meet Mike Clark, designer of Breakneck Derby, as well as Eric Mosso, designer of Cape May. Get in some games with us. We're looking forward to it. Definitely are. 
All right, Scott, I'll see you on Thursday. You have a very happy new year, and barring any horrible things, like drowning in the Monongahela River on January 1st, I'll see you in the new year. Still say you're nuts. Uh, I know. I accept it. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.